Dave's already prayed that we would be listeners to the word of the word and, and doers as well. So I'm going to take that as our prayer as we lead into it. But let's read the book of Acts, chapter 6, 15, starting at verse 36. Just a little bit of background. Uh, we're, we're working our way through the whole of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a story of what, how Jesus is continuing to, to take the message of his death, his burial, his resurrection and the triumph of him returning to make everything new. That's the gospel, the good news. And that message has been trusted to people and those people are taking it first from Jerusalem where the story began and they'll take it to the very ends of the earth. And so it's reached us here in Mafra and so we're in part fulfilment of that. Uh, but the story of the book of Acts is the first movement of the story of Jesus and all that he's done from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and the, the people that took that message did it uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we've seen all sorts of problems crop up as the, as the message spreads. So the message spreads and people believe it, but as well as it being believed, it's always opposed. And sometimes the opposition is violent. And so we've seen people in prison because they've preached about the Lord Jesus. We've seen people stoned. We've seen people executed because they trust Jesus. We've also seen problems amongst the very infant Christian community. We've seen problems such as deception, where people thought that they could tell lies in the church. We've seen jealousy, where one group thought, we're being left out, and this other group's getting things better than we are. So there's all sorts of problems that will stop the gospel or will oppose the gospel. Sometimes it's physical oppression, sometimes it's from within the church. Now last week Nathan was preaching about Acts chapter 15 where there's this big problem that had to be addressed. What happens to people that have put their trust in Jesus who are not Jewish? Because the people who had put their trust in Jesus who were Jewish, some of them thought we've paid this incredible price for being God's people. We've had to be circumcised. We've had to keep all these complex laws. What about them? Do they have to go through all this initiation before they can be full, fully paid up members of the, the family of God? And people like Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas said, no, no. We won't, we're not going to make any more demands of these Gentiles just that they trust in the Lord Jesus. And so that's the background to what we're reading now. Uh, the, the, uh, the people in the church in Jerusalem came up with a, a letter which had to be distributed to let the Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, know where they stood in things. And so all of that's taking place in Jerusalem and so we get to chapter 15, verse 36. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek 
He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So some big challenges in this text, isn't there? Uh, Separation and disagreement. But also the challenge of what to do with someone if they want to be involved in ministry to Jewish people. We see an example of determined devotion here. Now, I don't know if you know it, but uh, Ukraine is not the only war in the world at the moment. It's a bit hard to keep up with all the wars in the world, but there's one that's been going on in Syria, which is now into its 12th year. Uh, It's gone well off the pages of the the, uh, newspapers and so on. But Christians in northeastern Syria are suffering from three main sources. There's Turkish military airstrikes, the local Kurdish Muslim population, and the terrorist violence of the Islamic State. The Syrian economy is on the brink of collapse. Nine out of ten people in Syria are living in dire poverty. Thousands have left the country. But I read a story during the week from the Open Doors website. Open Doors is a Christian organisation that helps people in these difficult places. And it tells the story of a man who is called Anwar, that's not his real name, his real name has to be protected, but he grew up as the sheikh, a son of a Muslim leader in a strict Islamic sect. He was told as a child he mustn't speak to Christians and he says, I was sure that Christianity was a lie. I wasn't supposed to let any Christian enter my life. But then he went to college and he met a Christian girl who told him about Jesus. Initially he mocked her, but she persevered. And so this young man was so disillusioned with his upbringing and the faith that he thought Christianity might be worth a try. And that was the turning point in his life, the moment that his hopelessness turned into hope. And this is his testimony now, Jesus is everything to me, my brother, my companion, my best friend. And we've just been singing that. Anwar's testimony, Jesus is everything to me, my brother, my companion, my best friend. So in the midst of crisis, in the midst of great suffering, the gospel is still changing lives. And people can testify to the life-changing nature of this message of the Lord Jesus. The book of Acts shows us that even in the midst of opposition and oppression the gospel keeps going out because the message of Jesus will be carried to the ends of the earth. But now there's a new plot twist. There's a new challenge. And the challenge is this. The megastar of the founding Christian movement and his loyal sidekick have split up. There's never been a greater preacher of the gospel than the apostle Paul. Paul was a man gifted in friendship who attracted other people to him to take the message wherever he went and those co-workers have become quite famous in Christian history but there was no one with the effectiveness of Paul and now Paul and Barnabas have had a ministry split up. 
Now imagine if that was written about today, if they had the, the newspaper, television and internet world that we live in and the most famous Christian preacher in the world had just had this nasty split up with his well-known sidekick. Can you imagine the headlines? There would be some people who would be rejoicing. Now, the gospel went out at a time when they didn't have the media intrusion that we have. But Paul and Barnabas, our passage... Please keep your Bibles open and follow it with me. Um, Paul and Barnabas are carrying on its business as usual. They've been to this council meeting in Jerusalem to sort out this thorny problem of what to do with Gentile Christians. And once that's over, Paul says to Barnabas, let's return and see how the brothers are in all the places that we've been to. In other words, he wanted to check on their welfare. Paul was not a fly-by-night evangelist. He wasn't a one-night stand type of preacher where you just go in and you do your work and then you, you clear off and leave the fallout to other people to follow up. Paul was really concerned for the spiritual welfare of the people that he'd preached to. So he wanted to go back because he knew that the people that he'd preached to were suffering. We've already seen that earlier on in the book of Acts. And so it's a welfare check. He wants to go and see how they're going. Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that he lists all of the things that he's suffered, like imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks and all the rest of it. But the top of the list of his Christian suffering, according to 2 Corinthians 11, is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul really cared about the people he'd preached to. He wanted to know that they were doing well. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he can actually sum up his whole goal of ministry. He says he wants to present people mature to Christ. And when he says present, he means on judgment day. So on judgment day when he meets Jesus, he wants to be able to say, here are the ones I've brought with me. That's his concern. That's why they were going back to where they were going to. But unfortunately, they had a difference of opinion about the strategy. And so verses 37 to 38, Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him and Paul says no and we get this terribly well it's a tragic separation now John Mark we've met before sometimes he's just called Mark sometimes he's called John but he goes by two names a Jewish name and a Roman name as was quite common in those days we've already seen that he's a bit of an insider in Jerusalem his mother Mary owned a house where the earliest Christians used to meet quite regularly. We read about that in Acts 12. If you read ahead into Paul's letters in Colossians, we learn that uh, Mark was actually a cousin of Barnabas. So there's a bit of a family thing happening here. Barnabas says, I want to take cousin Mark with us. So there's a blood relationship there which might be colouring it. But he had gone with them on the first missionary journey, the first time that Paul and Barnabas went out to spread the good news. But we read there in chapter 13 that he'd left them in Pamphylia. We're not told why, but we're just told that he did. And he returned to Jerusalem. Now, no reason is given for why John Mark left Paul and Barnabas. All that we're told here is that he's departed from them. But now we discover that Paul weighs up whether they should have him back. And in Paul's assessment of things... He represents too big a risk. 
Now you think about this for a moment because I've heard people have been very critical of Paul at this point. Oh, he should be more forgiving. He should be more understanding. Poor young man, he wants a second chance. Isn't it right to give the young man a second chance? Right? Think what happened to Paul and Barnabas when they went touring through Lystra and Derby. Oh, they were only stoned. Paul was left for dead. Everywhere they went, they were followed by people that tried to make life difficult. If they're going to be weighed down by a man who even before they got to the trouble chucked it in he might be a weight that he's going to get in the way of the gospel being spread effectively that's what that's what Paul's weighing up because the words that are used here are serious words so when it says that he'd withdrawn from them that word withdrawn elsewhere in the bible is translated to mean falling away from the faith so it may be that John Mark's withdrawal from them back in Pamphylia was actually seen by Paul as an instance of a man wavering in his belief. Now Luke doesn't seem to take sides in the way he tells the stories here. He doesn't seem to say Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. So if you've formed a conclusion, well, good on you, but you're not actually getting it from what Luke says. You're making up your mind some other how. But Paul says he's failed to go with us to the work. We don't know why, but we do know that there was something about John Mark's previous performance that led Paul not to trust him. And so in verse 39, that leads to a sharp disagreement. In other words, they couldn't keep working together. And so there's a separation. And the only other time in the New Testament that word separation is used is when Jesus talks about married people not being separated. So what we're seeing here is actually a spiritual, a ministry divorce. That's how final this, this is. Now after this, in Luke's telling of the story of the movement of the gospel, we hear no more of Barnabas. Not a, not a word in the book of Acts. But what do we know about Barnabas already? Well, in chapter 4, we've read that he's got a nickname. Barnabas is, is his nickname. Jo- his real name is Joseph, but Barnabas means son of encouragement. In other words, he's good at coming alongside people and geeing them up, helping them find strength when the going gets tough. We've discovered that he's a generous person because he sold land that he owned and brought the money to the apostles to help the poor people in Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 9, when no one believed that Paul could possibly have gone from being a persecutor of Christians to being a genuine believer, it was Barnabas who took his side when Paul came to Jerusalem. So he's an encourager, he's generous, and he's someone who takes the tough decisions. He's courageous and he's loyal. In chapter 11, we're told there that he's a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He's a good man. Now, wouldn't you want someone like that on your team? Wouldn't you? I would. There's lots more that could be said about Barnabas, but the profile that we get of Barnabas is that he's a good bloke. So what does this mean, that he and Paul can't keep working together? It's tragic. But whatever the reason, and we're not told, it meant that Barnabas went one way, so he went with, he took John Mark with him and they went through Cyprus. And Paul took Silas, another partner, and he went back to Asia Minor. So there's a sense in which the ministry was doubled. 
They were going to go through Cyprus anyway, so Barnabas and John Mark do that. Paul takes Silas and later they pick up Timothy and they go through Asia Minor. But nonetheless, reading this and just letting it sink in, this is tragic. Now, I'm a music fan. One of my favourite songwriters is Bruce Springsteen. Any Bruce Springsteen fans here? Any? It's good. I oh, see that hand. Thank you. Uh, uh, have you heard of Bruce Springsteen? Bruce Springsteen started his performing career back in the 1960s and there's something about him that inspires loyalty. So his fans are very loyal fans and his band have been very loyal because he's been playing with some of these guys since the late 1960s. But in 1989, he decided he needed to pursue a new direction and he decided he was going to break up the band, not permanently, but just temporarily he was going to break up the band. But it's not just the musicians, it's all the people that they work with, the producers and the engineers and the people that take the photos. The whole lot of them always work together with Bruce. And so I saw an interview with the bloke who was in charge of mixing the sound when they made their records. And he described the effect of Bruce breaking up the E Street band on him. He said... I'm never going to hear that music again. Because there was something special about Bruce and the E Street Band and their history and their their combination that was irreplaceable. Now multiply that by a factor of a thousand and that's what you get when Paul and Barnabas decide to chuck it in because they just can't keep working. We're never going to hear that music again. And this is sad. Now this is an interesting thing because the book of Acts is not just a series of hero tales. If you were wanting to put the Christian movement in the best possible light as you tell the story of how it began, you'd airbrush out all the problems, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I would. If I was writing the story of Mafra Community Church I'd be, and, and hoping it would be read by people round and about, I'd omit all of the things that might make people think we're a dodgy bunch. But Luke includes the lot, including that the greatest preacher of all time outside of the Lord Jesus came to a point in his ministry where he couldn't continue to work with a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, the son of encouragement, a man who'd stood by him. It must have been some disagreement. And yet it's in here. And so what what does God want us to learn from this? Well, I think there's lots we can learn from it. And here's another music story. Have you ever heard of Garrison Keylor? Anybody here know Garrison Keylor? He had a radio program in America called A Prairie Home Companion where he would tell stories about a town he'd made up but he'd always have live music performed by brilliant musicians of the kind that I really like, right? And so one of his live broadcasts, he's introducing the musicians and they're incredibly talented people and he starts riffing on how he says they must have come from homes where mum and dad really cared and made them practice and ate their vegetables and all that sort of thing. Um, And then he said, we don't expect perfection. We're prepared to be surprised by it, but we don't expect perfection necessarily. And that's the thing with Christians. Don't expect your brothers and sisters to be perfect because you're not and whatever problems they are in the in the community of which you're a part you've added your share so don't judge Paul and don't judge Barnabas learn a lesson God uses imperfect people not because they're imperfect but because they're the only kind of people that's there is to work with
So don't go looking at this and saying, Ripper, sharp disagreement, Paul. Now I've met Christians whose most identifiable spiritual gift is the capacity for sharp disagreement. (laughs) And it's ugly. So don't look at this as a template for how to get along in church. This is not in here as an example. Well, it happened to them. might be okay from time. No, it's just that God's purposes are bigger even than the separation of this dynamic superstar ministry team. That's how big the purposes of God are. But the lesson for us is we must continue to look to Jesus. Don't judge Jesus by his servants because they'll let you down. Because all of Jesus' servants are imperfect, even Paul, even Barnabas. Well, how could they have settled the dispute? It's hard to know. But how can we settle disputes? Paul, later on in his career, wrote letters to churches that were fighting and not doing so well. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, he says this, Give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Every one of us has a contribution to make to peace. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace. So when you find conflict, ask, what can I do? Maybe even ask, what did I contribute to getting the conflict started? But that's Paul's mature advice to the Romans. But when there's conflict, and it happens all the time, it's been happening since then, it's, it's gone on in churches everywhere, uh, there's always a ripple effect. When there's conflict, when there's division, when there's arguments that just can't be got over, there's always a ripple effect. Paul gives us something else to think about in Romans 2. And I've, I've changed the words just slightly to make it into a question. If you find yourself getting into something that appears to be divisive, that looks like an argument that could end up causing separation, ask this question. Will the name of God be blasphemed among the Gentiles because of me? Because that's what happened. News of it gets out and other people hear, oh, those Christians are fighting again. Yep, hypocrites, bunch of them. I'll tell you a story about that. I used to go down the street when I was a teacher at Warrigal High School. Um, my friend Roy would have, uh, he would, he would have a, a carload of people wanting to buy their lunch down the street. They went every day. I would sometimes go with them. Roy had been teaching in Warrigal since the beginning of his career. He was now teaching the grandchildren of kids that were there when he first started. He was an institution in the town. He knew just about everybody. And Roy was a garrulous sort of fellow who would run a commentary as he was driving. And so we got to a a stop sign and there was a median strip and there was a man there. And Roy looked up and he says, that bloke's not talking to his brother. Now, Roy was not a Christian. But he said, he's on one side of the church split and the other one's on the other side. Now, I'm not even going to tell you what the issue was. It's one that has affected a lot of churches all knew all Roy knew was that this bloke wasn't talking to his brother the ripples go out ask before you make your contribution to division 
Will the name of God be blasphemed among the Gentiles if I pursue the course that I'm currently on? That's something to think about. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Well, back to our reading, second part of chapter uh, verse 39. Uh, Paul takes, uh, or Barnabas took Mark with him, went to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas. And they go back to Asia Minor. But then down into chapter 16. Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. It's interesting that he was a disciple. That means he's a follower of the Lord Jesus, which must mean that when Paul preached in Lystra previously, Timothy became a Christian. So there was fruit. Even though Paul was stoned and left for dead, Timothy became a believer because the gospel is bigger than human adversity. Now, there's a problem with Timothy. His mother was a Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. He's got a good reputation. He's well spoken of wherever he is. But Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him. Now, can you, you see the problem there? Well, big problem for Timothy because he's a man and circumcision's normally done fairly soon after birth. So, Timothy, I want you to come with me. Yeah, Paul, I'd love to do that. Timothy, you'll need to be circumcised. (laughs) That's a massive commitment for an adult male to the ministry of the gospel. Massive commitment. But is Paul getting it wrong? Because in chapter 15, Paul's been amongst that group of people that says circumcision is not required. Now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the law, you can't add anything to it. You can't become more saved by being circumcised. So what's going on? This is one of those things where people say, oh, the Bible's full of inconsistencies. Well, that's only because you don't know how to read it. What this is, there's a lesson in ministry for us here too. This is an example of what Christian thinkers these days call contextualising the gospel. What's Paul's goal? Paul wants to see people come to the Lord Jesus. He wants to win them for Christ. In the power of the Holy Spirit taking the message that Jesus died and was raised again, he wants to see people changed and converted, made new. He wants to see Jewish people and Gentile people putting their trust in Jesus. Whenever Paul went out with the gospel, he always went first to the synagogue. Synagogues is where Jewish people met. They were scattered all the way around that part of the world. If Paul wanted to take Timothy with him because he saw something in him that said, this guy's got a future in ministry, if it was known to the synagogue people, Timothy wouldn't have been able to go in there being uncircumcised. And so Paul asks Timothy to volunteer, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. To make himself a candidate for Christian ministry, Timothy was prepared to go to those lengths. Now that doesn't become a template. It does not mean that every Christian has to be, every male Christian has to be circumcised. No, it's not at all. But in this instance, we get an example of what to do if you're going into a complex ministry setting, if it will enhance or even permit the preaching of the gospel. Now, Paul takes this up elsewhere in his writings. In 1 Corinthians, he says in chapter 9, we endure anything 
rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't know if he had Timothy in mind. We endure anything. That's a lot of endurance on Timothy's part. Make no mistake. He says, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I myself was not under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. By all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul says, do whatever it takes to win people for, the, for Christ. Then he goes on and he has this illustration. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. It's hard to imagine a person getting to the final of an athletic competition and deciding to leave their tracksuit on or running in gumboots rather than in, in spikes. Paul says, if you're in a race, run in such a way that you become a contender to win the prize. And so Timothy did. Timothy was circumcised because it was the only way that he could participate in ministry to Jews. Timothy paid the price. Now, what does that mean for us? Uh, yep, there'll be times when we need to think about the way we behave in relation to the people that we're seeking to win. Um, you've probably heard of the God Squad motorcycle group. Have you heard of the God Squad? Uh, John Smith, he decided, you know, take an interest in, in motorbike culture, wear motorbike-style clothes, that'll get you an in with motorcycle people, and it did. It took them a long time, but it did. But... Um, not everything is okay as far as contextualising the gospel. Have you heard of the children of God? They were a, a, a Christian cult group that were prominent in the late 70s into the 80s and their founder Moses David came up with the concept of what he called flirty fishing where he encouraged the female members of the sect to seduce men and tell them about Jesus after they had sex with them. That is not okay. So how do we get the context, how do we contextualise the gospel? It's got to be consistent with, with what the gospel requires of us. But it's also got to be done in a way that says we're confident that we don't need to mangle the word, we don't need, don't need to manipulate the word, we don't need to play on people's emotions, we'll just tell them the truth. Go to the word in the power of the Holy Spirit and exalt Christ and let him do the work. We don't need to manipulate people with these sorts of tricks and techniques. But there is a challenge for us in what we see in Timothy. What lengths are we prepared to go to to see people one to Christ? Paul says he'll do whatever it takes within those parameters. But what about Barnabas and Mark as we finish? Just Barnabas must have continued to be active in ministry because you get Paul refers to him several times in his letters and clearly it's... They're diverse Christian communities, but clearly they knew who he was. Uh, by the time we get to Philemon chapter 1, Paul's clearly reconciled with Mark because he calls him a fellow worker. Now, who knows, but maybe Mark spending time with cousin Barnabas in Cyprus, Barnabas the son of encouragement, maybe whatever it was that stopped Mark ministering in Pamphylia, maybe Barnabas was able to help him through that. But maybe the time wasn't right for him to go with Paul. 
We just don't know, but we do know that later on we find that Mark has been restored not just to gospel ministry, but to Paul. And Paul acknowledges him as a fellow worker. In fact, in First Peter chapter 5, in Second Timothy chapter 4, he, Paul's writing from prison where he knows he's going to be executed and he, he writes to Timothy, he says, get Mark and bring him with you. And he says, he's very useful to me. So Paul and Mark were restored. But of course, we know from Christian history and from the evidence of the, the letters of Peter that Mark worked closely with Peter and that's why we've got a gospel called Mark. John Mark wrote down what Peter preached. So there's another lesson for us. Failure's not final. Mark failed them, but failure's not final. And so verse 5 tells us that the churches were strengthened in the faith, even as a result of this disagreement, even as a result of the separation. As they went through the churches, they were strengthened in faith and they they increased in numbers daily. See, the gospel is powerful and it will have its effect. And God can transcend oppression and violence and imprisonment and execution. And God can even transcend Christians when they fight. doesn't give us a reason to fight. doesn't give us an excuse for fighting. But the gospel is powerful and it will go to the ends of the earth and it will see people saved because it's from God, about his son and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's be part of it. Let's pray. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us to be people uh, of whom it could be said that we would use whatever means we can to see others one to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these challenging stories in the Bible that they haven't been airbrushed out, they've been left in so that we can mull them over, think them through. Uh, Please help us to be very cautious of being part of disagreement and, and division and separation please help us to do whatever we can to be agents of your reconciliation uh, help us to think very hard about what we can contribute to peace in our communities um, father we ask that you would cause us to be like timothy uh, to be courageous and devoted to the gospel to the point where we we're prepared to make sacrifices but we ask again that you would use us to see the gospel advance to go out from from here uh, to the very ends of the earth and so we pray these things in jesus name amen